learning about the rebuilding of Jerusalem by the exiled Jews some 2,500 years ago. And we might ask, why do we bother reading ancient events like this? <laughs> what do they have to do with us today? And for that, we have an answer in Paul's letter to the Romans. He said, whatever was written in former days, including Nehemiah, was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The book of Nehemiah and all Old Testament books were written to teach us that we might endure in the faith ourselves today that we might have encouragement when we're distressed, downcast, that we might have hope that the promises of God are true, and we've seen Him fulfill those promises over the centuries. That's why we go back and read what was written in former days, like Nehemiah. So there's encouragement here. Let's pick up the story in chapter 4, see what it has to teach us. The context before we read is that Nehemiah has come to Jerusalem from Persia, the land where they had been captive for many years. He had a high position with the king, but he was also a Jew, and he received permission to go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the city um, of the place where God had said his name would dwell, Jerusalem. So he, he rallied people in chapter 3. They're rebuilding the wall. They're making great progress, but now in chapter 4, they run into opposition. So let's read verses 1 through 9, see what that looked like, and then ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? They will, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Let's pray. Take us back, Lord, to the time of this ancient text and help us understand what was at work, the temptations they had, the challenges, but also your faithfulness, your work and your activity to accomplish your will. 
We need to hear from these things today. Teach us and encourage us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always interested in knowing how people keep going and how they stay on track when they face various kinds of trials for their faith. So if I, if, I, if I hear of a book, a biography, you know, about some missionary, some saint, some, somebody from, from old times or even current times, and it's about how they, they persevered when they were destitute or when they were mistreated or when they were persecuted, those are the kind of books that I want to have on my nightstand because I want to persevere what, like they did. I want to know how did they do it. I want to be encouraged that it can be done. And I hope that you want to do the same. Nehemiah chapter 4 is that kind of a story. It's a record of people who are just like us, who stayed the course in following the Lord's will for them, even when it seemed like they might lose their life for doing it. Here you've got people with diverse occupations. Todd mentioned this last week in chapter 3. There was perfumers, there was goldsmiths, there were priests, there were merchants. They were all building the wall. They were just all these different people with different, different occupations. Wasn't, they weren't stonemasons, but they're throwing in their work. There's people from different walks of life. There were fathers and daughter, daughters. There was rulers, there were servants. All of them are captivated by this calling to restore Jerusalem to its former glory, Glory as the place where God's name dwells. And then suddenly, two men rise up, Sanballat and Tobiah. And they oppose them. They start with taunts. Mere words, but they hurt. What are these feeble Jews doing? (laughs) Feeble. But then that eventually leads to threats, even death threats. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and yet the work continued, said. Nehemiah says, so we built the wall. (laughs) Somehow they found courage to stay the course despite opposition. And that was written for our endurance and for our encouragement to do the same thing when we face opposition for following Christ today, and we will. We will face opposition for following Jesus. Jesus said that we would. He said to John 15 to his disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. An expected consequence of being chosen by Christ for salvation is that someone and maybe lots of people will have a problem with you. They will hate you for obeying the Lord and all that He commands. And that's because they hated Jesus before they they hate us. The servant will be like the master. He was a perfect man, and they found a reason to crucify Him. And so Jesus says, you will also carry a cross. Because Christ, in His way of salvation, appeals to some, but to others it's offensive. So how do we stay the course in following Christ despite opposition? We have a lot to learn about how to press on in building the church from these normal people who are building the wall of Jerusalem. Let's break the passage down into three principles. 
for staying the course. And the first one is about having God's perspective on our challenges, His perspective. I'll say it this way. The church is despised but ultimately victorious and indestructible. The church is despised, but ultimately victorious and indestructible. Despised is the word that Nehemiah used in verse 4 in his prayer. He says, hear, O God, for we are despised. When I read what these two guys had to say, I couldn't help but compare it to a negative comment thread on a social media post. That's the first image that came to my mind. Uh, their words are full of bluster, intimidation. That's the kind of thing that people say when they feel safe behind a computer screen in their house and they have no fear of any repercussions or consequence. Just full of all sorts of blah. I imagine a scene like this. Nehemiah posts a picture of people building a stone wall. And the caption is, Look at the progress on the wall of Jerusalem. The good hand of our Lord is upon us. Then Sanballat gets on his computer. <laughs> what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they receive the, we revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Then Tobiah gets on his computer. Yeah, what are they doing? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. We can relate to that kind of stuff. That's taunts. To them, the whole thing is laughable. It's contemptible. Look at these silly perfumers and priests trying to build a wall that would withstand attack. They despise Nehemiah and the people of Israel. That's often how the world sees faithfulness to God. It's silly. It's even contemptible. God's way of doing things has ever been despised by the world. Isn't the gospel itself an example of that? What did Isaiah say about the coming Savior in chapter 53? He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. And yet, it's through his rejection on the cross that Jesus, the suffering servant, bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. God's way of doing things has always been despised by the world, and yet it is ultimately victorious and indestructible, as demonstrated by that same Jesus, that same suffering servant, rising from the dead on the third day with his immortal body, the first fruits of those from the dead, and his people will follow with him in his train, all that he has rescued. It is victorious. It is indestructible. But it starts out despised. The Lord is gathering a people who will follow Jesus in the resurrection, and it's called the church. And from an earthly perspective, it seems foolish and feeble. It's built out of the very materials that Sanballat mocked. 
He said, stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. You know, Peter uses the illustration of stones to talk about the church. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 4-6. He said, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. We are stones picked out of the rubbish, if you will. All of us at one time, dead in our trespasses and sins and of no use to the Lord. We were and we are burned by life's traumas, by our own bad choices, by all kinds of difficult experiences and failures. But Jesus makes us like living stones, and He adds us to His spiritual house, the community of the redeemed, of which He is the cornerstone, the chosen and precious stone that was rejected by the builders. It's like Paul, he said to the Roman or to the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's how God builds His church, with low and despised, with foolish, not wise, weak, not strong. Stones picked out of the rubbish, burned ones, and He makes us into a spiritual house that lasts forever. The church is foolish and despised, but the church is ultimately victorious because Jesus is the one who's building it. I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's why it stands. That's why it continues from one generation to the next. That's why it's making its way all the way around the world and into every single nation. Because he's doing it, not just us. That's what gives us its strength. It's true, the visible church has all sorts of problems. Individual churches, even denominations, can go off the rails and even cease to function as God intended. And that's because the visible church isn't all the true church. It's full of non-Christians who profess to be Christian. And every Christian that's in it, that's the real thing, is also not fully renewed. And so we go off the rails. We get a lot of things wrong. There's foolishness. And yet... That is what Jesus is building and renewing day by day until glory when it's finished. It will endure forever. In the screw tape letters, the demon screw tape described the church as spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. Terrible from the demon's point of view but beautiful from the point of view of the believer who's brought into it by Christ. 
What the Lord's building is despised but ultimately victorious. That gives us encouragement in, our, in the opposition. The opposition can't ultimately win. And that's why we don't despair. Let's continue. Here's another principle for staying the course. When tempted to quit, remember the Lord and His mission. This will take some time to, to walk through it. But when tempted to quit, remember the Lord and His mission. So after the taunting didn't stop the wall building, things turned more serious. Sanballat and Tobiah were joined by others. They're listed as Arabs, Ammonites, Ashdodites. Those names don't mean that much to us unless we understand the context. But basically, what that says is there was a ring of enemies all the way around Jerusalem and Judah, surrounded on all sides by people who want to stop them. And their taunts end up turning into credible threats of a violent attack. In verse 8, it says, They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so what happened was the work stopped for a time, and the Jews switched into a defensive posture, and they posted guards in all the, all the areas where they were building, and they kind of hunkered down to, to face this threat that's coming at them. And now verses 10 through 14 are like a journalist's report from the front lines, we might say. How are the people doing in Jerusalem given this threat, given this escalation of the opposition? And what we find out is they are severely tempted to quit, to give up building the wall. So let's read that text, verses 10 to 14. This is the journalistic report, you might say. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see, or, or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall in open places, I, that's Nehemiah, stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I see in that three temptations to quit and one exhortation not to. So let's walk through the three temptations because these are common temptations for us today. And the exhortation is also potent for us today because it got them going again. The first temptation to quit was weariness. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. That's weariness. Have you ever felt that way? As you're plugging away at something that the Lord has called you to do. Have you ever felt that it's just too much? That you don't have the strength to keep doing this. That you don't have what it takes to finish. 
That's a very normal and even an accurate feeling. <laughs> we should be concerned if we never feel that way. Because the fact of the matter is, by ourselves, we are not able to do what God calls us to do. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. By ourselves, we're not able to build the wall, build the church, build a family, or build anything of significance that lasts for eternity. Psalm 127.1 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We contribute our effort for sure, but our effort is in vain unless the Lord is at work building. He's the determining factor. So we need the Lord to empower us and to do more than we can do by ourselves. What we do is we live a life of dependent discipline. It's a phrase that Jerry Bridges used in his books, dependent discipline. We're going to work hard. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to get our hand to the plow, but we're dependent on God for anything to happen. We, we, our business is the doing. His is of the outcome. We can't create the outcome. Only he can. Our tiredness is actually a reminder that we are only human. <laughs> we are not God. We get tired serving on a Sunday, year by year. We get tired raising kids. We get tired caring for people, especially when they're difficult people. We can even get tired of praying. Jesus said to his sleeping disciples in the garden, could you not watch with me for one hour? No, <laughs> they couldn't. We get weary even praying. That's why it's hard to keep a prayer meeting going week by week, month by month, year by year. It is hard. And that's why we have the exhortation in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We are tempted to give up because we're human. But God is sufficient for us. His grace is sufficient for us. When we get to Nehemiah's exhortation, we'll find more help about how not to grow weary. Here's the second temptation, though. The second reason we might want to quit is fear. Fear. I won't dwell on this one very long because that's going to come back in chapter 6, and Pastor Dan's going to preach on that in two weeks. But it needs to be mentioned. The enemies say in verse 11, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. This is a death threat. It strikes fear into the heart of a person. And apparently it was public knowledge because Nehemiah knew they were saying that. And, and what could be more of a temptation to stop than to be told you will die if you keep doing this? And yet, even that can be overcome. And I've watched it. Going back to the Ethiopia Pastors College, I've spoken of this guy. He was a convert to Christianity in Somalia, 99.9% .9 Muslim country. After becoming a convert, he started to receive death threats on a regular basis, text messages from Al-Shabaab and whatever else, saying, we know where you are and we're going to kill you. Now, if I was getting those text messages... I would have trouble sleeping at night, much less doing anything bold for Christ. 
But here's a guy who's planted 13 churches since he got those death threats, and he's planning on going back to Somalia and plant one there, where they're sending the threats from. God can do that. God can strengthen us in such a way we can overcome any fear. We don't have that same kind of threat facing us here in our cultural moment, but that doesn't mean Christians aren't afraid of things. We have our own things that we're afraid of. In our evangelism materials, the C4 little bulletin that was out there, um, we talk about what the process is to walk somebody towards Jesus. And at some point, you get to what we call the pain line. The pain line is that moment when you bring Jesus into the conversation. So you're making friends with somebody, you're caring for them, you connect with them. But at some point, you're going to communicate the gospel, and that's the pain line. Because what happens at that moment? Now I might be rejected. Now I might lose the friendship. Now I might lose my job if this is in the wrong setting. All of a sudden, there are consequences, and that's what we call the pain line. And we fear that, which is why we don't want to make that step and say something that might bring somebody into the kingdom. There's a temptation there. But again, that can be overcome. Last temptation mentioned is the appeal of escape routes. That's what I'm calling it. The appeal of escape routes. In verse 12, it says, The Jews of the surrounding areas outside the city, they came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. (laughs) In other words, it's not safe for you here. Come back out into the country where we live. You can still be a faithful Jew and you won't be killed for it. That sounds appealing, I'm thinking, if you're one of the ones building on the wall with death threats. You know, I could, I could get around this. I could escape this. I could find a safer way and still my conscience would be okay, right? Escape routes have appeal. Well-intended people can talk us out of living faithfully and boldly in the things God has called us to do, and we can talk ourselves out of it. You know, just take the easier path. Come away from the risk. Come away from the hard thing. Come away to comfort. Just blend into the countryside. Don't stand out for Christ, whether that's in your parenting or in your workplace or in your community. Escape into distractions. Anything but putting your hand to the plow in service to Christ. I feel that pull on my life. So I'm getting old enough now where I can kind of see out there, there's a thing out there called retirement somewhere. Don't know where, but it's out there, and it's this promised land, right, of you don't have to work so hard anymore at preaching and You don't have to deal with all the cultural stuff. And you don't have to lead a church. And that sounds very nice and soothing. But yes, thank you for that little reservation there. Fortunately, the Lord has kept me from that, from going that way. I still have a lot of desire for the work. But I feel that pull, right? We want to find an easier way. Those are temptations. You want to find escape routes. We all face different temptations, the same ones that face the Jews when they were about to be told, when they were thinking, maybe I won't do this anymore. They faced weariness. They faced fear. They faced escape routes that seemed appealing to them. But all of those 
can be overcome, and they were overcome by one exhortation that Nehemiah brings into it in verse 14. And it's our exhortation too. He said, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I can't help but picture a scene from the Lord of the Rings here. Aragorn riding in front of the outnumbered armies of Rohan and Gondor at the Black Gate, sword raised, voice commanding, telling them, this day we fight. <laughs> I bid you stand, men of the West. I love that, that scene. Everybody's back gets a little straighter, and suddenly they all have courage to face the armies of Mordor. Nehemiah had a moment like that, though I don't think that he was probably as cool-looking as Aragorn, and he probably didn't have a sword either. But he had that moment where he put courage into these people. He encouraged them by saying, Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and so forth. Remember the Lord is how it starts. Remember his character, great and awesome. I don't want this to sound like a cliche, but God is genuinely greater than any opposition, no matter what it is, and he is on our side. Just think about it. He created the universe out of nothing by his will and his word. You know, every new picture we get from the James Webb Space Telescope that sees farther and farther out is just saying more and more glory of God. He did all that by his word. The power of a billion sons is less than the power of his word. In the spiritual realm, the power of a legion of demons, which is between three and 6,000 demons, is completely no match for one word from Jesus who said, come out of the man. And they did. This is the God who calls us to follow him. This is the God of whom Nebuchadnezzar said, He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? This is the God of whom Nehemiah said in verse 20, Our God will fight for us. Now it's true that God doesn't promise us an easy life. He, he doesn't promise that we won't suffer. We will suffer on the path of obedience. But it is also true that His grace is sufficient for us in the suffering. And His plans for His church and for our, for our eternal joy will come to pass. The Almighty, the great and the awesome Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. That's what Psalm 121 says. They sang that on their way up to Jerusalem every year. The song of ascents. So we find the strength to stay the course when we remember the Lord and His greatness and that He's on our side. And then it also comes from remembering His mission. Remembering what the Lord is doing in this world through His church. After saying, remember the Lord, Nehemiah said, fight for your brothers, your sisters, your, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. 
In other words, remember why you are building this wall. It is for your loved ones. You're not just doing this for yourself. You're doing it for the welfare of others. And so also with followers of Jesus today. The mission of the church is to bring many people into the safety and the blessedness of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, or it is said of him, he came to seek and to save the lost. He came to rescue the prisoner of sin. He came to set free the captives to the devil. He came to give people a future and a hope. And when a person puts their trust in him, then they become our brother, our sister. We are fighting the spiritual war for them, the ones who are yet to come in to the fold, as well as for each other. We get courage when we continue, or to continue, when we're thinking about the prospect of people's lives being transformed by Christ. That's what's lost if we quit. Unlike the situation of Jerusalem where it was surrounded by enemies and actual armies, we don't fight for the church with the weapons of this world. Jesus ruled that out when he told Peter in the garden to put down his sword after he tried to take off the servant's head. Jesus ruled it out when he rebuked James and John who wanted to call fire down from heaven on their enemies. And he said, no, he rebuked them for that. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. Simon the Zealot, one of the other apostles, wanted to overthrow the government violently, and Jesus turned him into a zealous person for the gospel. We fight a spiritual enemy with spiritual weapons. Paul said in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we fight with the Word of God. We engage in witness and fellowship and service and good works for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. We make it our aim to build the church, to build the community that is to be an experience of the life that is to come for all who trust in Christ. We work to see people freed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And if we can put a face on that, the face of the person that you want to reach, it will help you stay the course. Yesterday at the Safe Families Training, Alyssa gave us some recent requests from the community, the kind of things that we'll be doing as we get involved with Safe Families. And one of the requests, this is live, this is recent, this is a refugee from uh, another country, a woman who's a widow. Her husband and her two oldest children were murdered by gang violence. They fled the country, ended up here in Aurora. She has like two or three other kids, and she needs help with everything. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could see her? Not just receive all the temporal needs that she has, definitely start with that, but also to have eternal hope, 
to be redeemed, to be reclaimed, renewed, given a future and a hope. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of that? So when we have a face like that, a name, it helps us. Yes, that's why I'm doing this. For her, not just for me. It'll help us stay the course. One last point on how to stay the course despite opposition, and this is going to be short. We stay the course when we keep the church close and God's word closer. Keep the church close and God's word closer. This comes from verses 15 to 22. I won't read those, but let me highlight two things that are mentioned there. The context is that the enemies lost their nerve when the people didn't bow to the threats, and so they pulled back. But the Jews kept on working, but this time they started to work with a lot more diligence, or vigilance, I should say. They recognized there was an ongoing danger, so they made a couple of modifications to what they were doing. And we read about them in verses 18 to 20. Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And verses 19 to 20, Nehemiah said, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So picture the situation. They're working on maybe a mile's worth of terrain. All these different places that they're working, just in little pockets, little groups, trying to shore up the low areas of the wall. They're spread out, which means they're vulnerable to attack. So Nehemiah has a plan that when the watchman sees an attack coming, everybody's going to rally together to one spot at the sound of the trumpet. And furthermore, each one has a sword strapped to their side. They don't have to go looking for it. It's on their person at all times. And with those two things in place, this is how they're going to protect themselves to the ongoing threat to their work with the trust that God is going to fight for them ultimately. How does that translate into the experience of the church today? The way I'm saying it is we keep the church close and God's word closer. Isolation from other believers is what leaves us vulnerable to the enemy of our souls. When we are spread out, when we are separated from one another, we are vulnerable to the enemy of our souls. It's no joke that the devil is like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. That's reality. It's no joke that each of us is capable of drifting away from the gospel that we have heard and neglecting such a great salvation as the writer of Hebrews talked about. If we're going to stay the course despite opposition to our faith and with our own internal issues, we need others in our lives. We need the encouragement, the instruction, and sometimes the correction of fellow believers. Woe to the person who has no one to rally to his side in the spiritual battle for his soul. We need to keep the church close. And that means we join up, we participate on Sundays, we participate in our homes in smaller groups and in ministry. That's God's way 
of keeping us on course. We need each other. But we need God's Word to be even closer. And that's what the sword is about. Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side, right there. Well, we have a sword that we fight with also. It's the Word of God. In Ephesians 6, it describes the armor of God that we use to struggle against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And that armor has only one weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And like builders on the wall, we need to keep it close. It needs to be strapped at our side, ready to be used, not something on a shelf somewhere, out of sight and out of mind. God's Word is not going to be any help to you in weariness or fear or appeal to escape routes if you don't know it. That means meditating on it day and night getting God's thoughts into our minds, letting them shape how we think, filling our heads with wisdom and promises, and especially with the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how we get the mind, the mind of Christ. That's how we protect ourselves from being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. I'm reading from Colossians 2. Taken captive according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We can be taken captive. We can be carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, to quote Second Peter. Your news feed, your social media feed, your acquaintances will shape your thinking. You and I need to keep God's Word close, very close, in our minds and on our lips in order to not be carried away, to not be taken captive. I'll say this in closing. Let's keep the church close <laughs> and God's Word even closer. This is what He's given us to make it through to stay the course. Let's remember the Lord and let's remember the beauty of His mission. Think about the people that are yet to come in and they will. You did. As many as trust Christ. And somebody was on the front end of that. Transformation happened. Wouldn't it be great to see more? <laughs> and let's remember that a little suffering, a little despising as we follow Christ is to be expected but Jesus went through the same thing and came out of the other end victorious. And eternally, he's got an eternal body. He's got an immortal body. <laughs> we'll follow that same way. We follow resurrection life. It ends for the believer in victorious resurrection and indestructible life. And that also will help us get through. That's how our story ends. That's where our trajectory is. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us encouragement of the scriptures of things written long ago, but principles that are current and a future that is sure. We do ask, Lord, for you to continue to encourage us, even as Nehemiah did to them, you do it to us today. 
through your word. Help us to stay the course. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the joy of that. Thank you that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you hear me? There you are. Let's stand. Respond to this message.